Hello, this is The Lubber's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to have you here. I'm Ian. And I'm Mike. And a couple of weeks ago, Mike and I both started rereading Master and Commander, the first novel in a book series that meant a lot to both of us. That's the the Jack Aubrey, Stephen Maturin novels by Patrick O'Brien. So to get us straight into talking about the books, Mike, could you maybe just give us a super abridged description of Master and Commander, the first book in the series, as you pick it up for the first time, what kind of a book is it? So I think most people would know this book, if they knew it at all, as a historical fiction Navy, might be expecting a little sea action. What they might not know is there's some great character studies, impeccable uh, attunement to those times and people and characters on shore as well as on sea. Offshore and offshore as well. Cool. Okay, thank you. And then how about for readers? Why is a guy like you or a guy like me picking up this book and going into rereading these books again? What are we getting from it? You know, for me, it, it's just this, I'm, I'm locked in at home and I'm returning to series that I love. And uh, having just finished huh. Harry Potter, this was my immediate second. And I have to say that it's been a number of years since I went through it. And I thought, wow, I forgot how rich, how wonderful this is. Fantastic. So speaking of rich and wonderful, I know that you were looking through uh, kind of literary reviews and kind of quotes. You came up with some really great quotes of what other people have said about these books. Tell us a couple of the examples that you had there. Yeah. Well, I mentioned historical fiction. So let's go to Mary Renault, who's a great historical novelist herself. You know, she said, and I quote, Mr. O'Brien does not just have the chief qualifications of a first class historical novelist. He has them all. And We'll go to somebody a little more recent, Joe Hill, uh, author in his own right, son of Stephen King, one of my favorite novelists, mm. who said, every Aubrey Matron book is packed to absolute straining with erudition, wit, history, and thunderous action. I like the sound of that. Any others? Well, uh, let's see. You know, let me go across the pond. I'm, I'm kind of well. Actually, I guess that was English. That was uh, American. Let's go to Ireland because yeah. Ireland features prominently in these things. Kevin Myers, writing in the Irish Times, said, "You're in for the treat of your lives. Thank God for Patrick O'Brien. His genius illuminates the literature of the English language and lightens the lives of those who read him." Wow. So that's what we're letting ourselves in for great to be starting to reread these again you know with, with all of that plus the fact that uh, we both have a little bit of time on our hands as you mentioned there are what 19 20 more books that come after master and commander so we were thinking that we might do something to share through this podcast to to highlight and intensify that rereading experience that mike and i are going through and share it with all of you as well so mike remind me what was on our list of things that we're trying to achieve with this podcast well, one of the things we said we wanted to do was to share our enjoyment as we read through this series. You know, we're starting with Master and Commander, and who knows, maybe we'll make it all the way through to Blue at the Mizzen, book number 20 in the series. Oh, that would be cool. Okay. And that means that we'll be able to dig into what makes the stories enjoyable and maybe build a little bit on our own personal take on the books and maybe exploring what other people and other uh, readers have liked about them too. Yeah, I like that. And, you know, we can kind of relish those best bits, maybe scratch our heads together over the parts that maybe we like a little bit less. Yeah, I guess we're going to find some of those too. And I'm really looking forward to kind of finding new things out as well, you know, looking for moments that are new or at least new to us that we can discover as we're kind of going back, rereading these favorite books of ours, shed some new light on the characters and the situations as we go along. 
Absolutely. And if you're listening to this podcast, we hope you'll enjoy the reading, the digging, the head scratching, the relishing, and that discovery along with us. So in each podcast, I guess what, we'll take a chunk of a book and kind of talk about the story as it unfolds, go into some of our favorite bits, see where the conversation takes us, right? Maybe before we dive in, uh, a little backstory, just a teaser, you know, something previously in the Aubrey Matron series. You know, when and where in the world did Patrick O'Brien start writing Master and Commander? And when and where in the world did readers first encounter the book? Ian, any insights? Oh, great question. And God bless the internet, right? So here we go. Um, according to Wikipedia, Patrick O'Brien was an English novelist with Irish ancestors on his mother's side. So hence, there's a strong Irish connection there. By 1969, he was already 55 years old and already four decades into a literary career that wasn't making him much in the way of money or fame. He might imagine that being in your 50s and nobody's ever heard of you. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, and he, O'Brien, was living in relative obscurity in the south of France with his wife, um, and as well as some literary fiction and biography and translations, he had, I think, in the past already written a couple of kind of lighthearted novels that were set in 18th century naval voyages of exploration. And if you think back, well, I I can just about think back into the 60s, not but not with any reading in mind. Maybe you can, Mike. Popular fiction was doing great business in the 60s. This was the era of what? Catch-22, the John le Carré books, Ludlam, Frank Herbert's Dune. You know, paperback reading had really taken off. And in 1966, C.S. Forrester died. Now, I've read all the Hornblower books of C.S. Forrester, and we might talk about them again in a second. But C.S. Forrester dies. That means the world doesn't get any more of these famous kind of swashbuckling naval hornblower novels and i believe an american publisher suggested to o'brien that he could try something in the in this genre of naval historical fiction yeah clearly so we're in 69 there's already a readership developed for exactly those kinds of stories and they couldn't get any more of their desire for hornblower so presumably you know that kind of readership then probably mostly historical nerd types. Um, and that would have been a bit of a narrow audience, even with the size of the American reader base. Right, right. I mean, we, we could both call ourselves history nerds, but there's probably not enough of us in the world to, <laughs> to make a fortune for a publisher. But to be fair, I mean, I, I read all the Humblower books. I loved them. I still enjoy them, but they're not exactly kind of prize-winning literary fiction. They're great pick it up and read it fiction. So it might well be that that American publisher was just hoping for, you know, a bankable series of pot boilers for people to pick up on their holidays and that the, the paperbacks would sell over a few seasons and, and that would be nice business. Yeah. So it's going to be really interesting to see what it was about O'Brien's writing and about the readership's response to it that took him to such great commercial success and such heights of critical acclaim on both sides of the Atlantic and that caused two guys like oh. us to start a podcast over them 50 years later. Right. Well, that's that's the big question. And maybe we, that's that's our whole theme, right, for the whole series of podcasts. But we're probably we're getting ahead of ourselves. That's all to come in the future. I think we've we've talked about it long enough. I think we better start turning the pages of Master and Commander and see what all the fuss is about. So here we go. Chapter one. I'm looking at the Wikipedia plot summary for Master and Commander, and it says the novel opens in April 1800. 
Jack Aubrey, a shipless lieutenant, or if you speak American, lieutenant, wasting away in the Royal Navy port of Mahon in Menorca, meets Stephen Maturin, a destitute Irish Catalan physician, natural philosopher, at a concert at the governor's mansion. And music is going to be a theme in their relationship, we see already. Mm. And during the performance, says Wikipedia, Maturin elbows Aubrey, because Aubrey's beating the measure half a beat ahead. He's kind of conducting the piece to himself half a beat ahead. And the men, who are both at personal low points, treat it as a matter of honour. They exchange names and they anticipate a duel. This is this kind of goes from trivial and social to kind of deep personal animus just in a couple of sentences, right? Right. So it, it struck me that they get in, they don't get introduced to each other. You know, if you look at the way people in the early 19th century were introducing themselves to each other in all of the rest of these books and in Jane Austen, you know, an introduction of one person to another tends to take the form of, you know, allow me to name my particular friend. But they meet each other without any social context and they have to kind of give each other's names and say where they are to be found. I've got to say, at first, I didn't read that as being kind of the setup for a duel. But looking at it again and thinking about it, it does seem like they were basically saying, if you didn't like me digging you in the ribs and you want to come find out some more about it, here's where you can find me. Was that, was that how you saw it as well, Mike? Yeah, it, it, it clearly there was a little bit of that potential for calling out, but it seemed more like they were both at uh, kind of low points and a little more than usually irritable. And, and this kind of sparked <laughs> it. Yeah, fair. Although I think for Stephen... As we, as we get to know him in the rest of the books, I think he's at his only slightly above his normal level of irritability. But like you say, they're all on a bit of a low point. <laughs> That's it's funny, right. isn't it? You know, uh, they're, 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 not, they're not high status individuals either. You know, no. uh, a, a lieutenant in the Navy on shore without a, without a job is kind of kind of scraping by. And it turns out that Stephen Maturin's kind of squatting in a, in a ruined shack somewhere up in Port Mahon. So neither of them is on top of the world. And it's funny, I was kind of asking myself, why are we in Mahon in Mallorca, sorry, Menorca, and not Portsmouth, and not, you know, blockading Toulon or Brest, which is where the action might have started if you were in a Hornblower type story? And maybe we're meeting these two kind of remote, you know, far away from the hierarchy of British life. They're surrounded by the British naval hierarchy because Mahon is a naval base, at least for the time being, for, for, uh, for Britain, and all of the expatriate British institutions are there. And we know, I think, that Patrick O'Brien really loved the Mediterranean, you know, the, the the Mediterranean, the Catalan coast of France, really close to Barcelona was where he was living at the time when he lived most of his active adult life. Um, so maybe that was a little bit of Patrick O'Brien saying, this is my home. And we might get to talk later on about, you know, how the how we see the two characters changes depending on where they are. But I think it was a cute and sort of interesting choice to place them not in a traditional kind of naval HQ or naval action setting, but kind of out in this fairly remote outpost. Yeah, and not to jump ahead, but one that uh, they wouldn't be able to be in or would have to be in in a much different context uh, very shortly in, in future books. Yeah, yeah, because let me see. For history buffs, the piece of Amiens is coming in about, uh, in about uh, what, 20 month time. So <laughs> they're going to have to get some action in. And interestingly, like you said in the intro, Mike, we're getting this sense here that this is not a sort of action swashbuckling boredom in the smoke kind of a story already we're getting the idea that some of the action is going to be on shore right yeah which is one of the things that i 
I was a little bit, in some ways, surprised to go back to and then fondly remembered and said, God, this is one of the reasons I relish this. It's, it's not, you know, today's big theater productions of, you know, one action scene, you know, very loosely tied to another. It's really a story. Great depth, great richness. Yeah, fantastic. And he packs so much into these first couple of chapters as well. I mean, we're not going to cover oh. it all, but he's 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 introducing the uh, characters to each other and we're learning a little bit about them as personalities. Some of the backstory is filled in by conversations with other people. And then I think uh, we get one of these classic moments, classic Patrick O'Brien moments where Aubrey reads himself in on the quarter deck of uh, of, of the Sophie, the, the small ship, the brig that he's now appointed to be commander of. Um, we get this phrase, hereof, nor you, nor any of you may fail as you will answer to the contrary at your peril. And I think I think a few more people in the world could do with orders like that, couldn't they, Mike? Yeah. And I, I love, you know, this is one of the things that I think years after I had read this that still rung through my mind as I thought back on it, this whole idea of, you know, uh, at your peril, suffering death. I mean, I'm, I'm jumping ahead here, yeah. this Levitical air to some of this and how reassuring people found it to say, gosh, that's what I know. That's what's routine. That's what I feel comfortable right. in, albeit a, a you know a threat to our very persons. Yeah, that's right. And then, you know we hear later on that uh, people read the articles of war aboard ship in place of having Sunday worship. You know, <laughs> so the, the the words have the same kind of role. The, the words of order and hierarchy from the Admiralty have the same place in people's lives as you know as as, as divine worship. So yeah, striking. The yeah. other thing I just want to mention before we move on from the introduction is I, I I love the setup from the introduction and looking at how these two characters meet. It's like it's like a rom com except it's bromance rather than romance, right? You know, it would be such a classic Nora Ephron rom com thing for the two characters to meet, feeling a bit grouchy. They really fall out. They hate the sight of each other. They part on really bad terms, but then they meet the next day in in a different context, and something has changed in the air. And all of a sudden they sit down over a meal and then actually the friendship blossoms and we're getting, you know, rom-com bromance, but in the 19th century and between two guys, it's amazing. It, it really is. And I, I've scratched my head and you, you know, you have a much better memory and recall and things, but I was trying to think to myself, where in fiction do we have this kind of relationship between two men that continues over 20 books, highs and lows, in this incredible uh, bromance, philosophical, all of life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's just amazing to me. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? We get lots of, um, especially kind of male-oriented books, we have a, a protagonist and a sidekick, you know, right. uh, Holmes and Watson, you know, Don Quixote and Sancho Panza, uh, Batman and Robin, but those are always kind of, there's the main dude and there's the kind of the hanger on. And really interesting how this story is being told with both of them as kind of co-protagonists. Um, we'll talk some more about, you know, which which point of view Patrick O'Brien feels the most affinity with between Jack and Stephen, I guess. But, you know, the idea of, you know, Batman and Robin is kind of, that's that's not where we are. This is two two people who are going to kind of, find their way to be friends or 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 whatever they're going to be yes yeah absolutely Fantastic. true so so they've got to learn about each other we the readers get to learn about them and we already start to get into the kind of naval mechanics but there's once we get into chapter two there's this really great and a reasonably kind of subtle opening up of all of the naval technicalities 
So how about that, Mike? I think you had some thoughts on that. Well, it really fascinates me that sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll be looking at ratings on Goodreads or on Amazon or on you know, other people who have written about Mastering Commander or about the series in itself. And one of the things that comes up very rarely, but it does come up, people say, oh my gosh, couldn't get into it because it's got all these technicalities. And I remember when I first opened Mastering Commander, there was an illustration of all these sales with all the names that, that to me, looked a little bit more complex than the biology section of, of you know, multiple <laughs> sheets that you would flip through in your, in your high school reader. And I thought, oh my gosh, I will never understand what all these are. Um, luckily, I have a, a sailing buddy in you who could, who could wisen me up <laughs> right. a little bit. But I quickly found that it really didn't matter. It didn't take me away right. from the story. And in fact, he uses this phenomenal device to say, Stephen knows nothing about the Navy, nothing about ships or boats or, you know, all the all the particular terms to call them. And it's fascinating because he's such a brilliant person. He has so many depths, uh, ranges of interest in natural philosophy and, you know, a physician in all the things that he does, but knows nothing about this. And O'Brien uses this way of being able to introduce us to so many things by having Stephen taught by midshipmen, by other people, and telling him about, you know, here's all the sails, here's the mass, here's the rigging. Uh, And it's just a fabulous way to say, if you want to know more about this, it's right there. And it's done in an entertaining and engaging way. If you don't want to, just at, at being a listener of the books as I am, as well as a reader of the books, just let those words roll over your ears. So his research clearly was impeccable, amazing, um, the way he brings this to bear. But he also, again, does it in a way that says, if you miss all of that, you don't lose any of the story, right. and it yeah. does not have to get in your way. So I would say, particularly to new readers in the series, hang in there. If you're loving it, if you know nautical things, by all means, if you don't, just have a fantastic time, particularly as these, you know, these naval salts explain to Stephen as they would to any landsman by saying things like, it has two masks and holding up their fingers to show the number two and speaking (laughs) very slowly. So if you're a lover like me, you'll get to relish that as well. Very good. Oh, and of course, man, the the, the lubber's hole, the 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 means by which uh, <laughs> yeah. an, a, a neophyte, a newbie, is able to climb up to the top. We that was such a great piece of language that we chose it for the name of the podcast, right? The Absolutely. lubber's hole is where you go when you're just learning. Um, that's great. And like you say, it's you know O'Brien pays us this great compliment of saying, "I'll smatter the technicalities in there, and I'll enjoy all the kind of the deliciousness of the language." But you know, you don't need it, and you can catch up. Absolutely. You know, it's funny being being O'Brien. You get that lovers' whole reference. You know, twice, one right after another. One with Stephen, one with Jack. Jack first, then with Stephen, and right. and to great comic right. relief as well as educational value. Yeah, and I think we get the idea that the connection between Stephen and the ship's company and him learning the kind of nautical language is always going to be a a light note, and it's going to be kind of comedy. There's also kind of a dark note coming, I think, as we get to know the the first lieutenant this kind of second in command of the ship, um, James Dillon. And we can probably spend a bit of a, we can probably cover quite a bit of James Dillon's art right now because it's 
used really fascinatingly to add this kind of there's this dark tone of something bad could happen on this ship because we learn that James and Stephen actually knew each other both as um, men involved in the United Irishmen, the, the kind of Irish rebellion at the end of the uh, 18th century, and they pretend at first not to recognize each other, and then they kind of halfly kind of acknowledge each other and sort of agree not to speak about each other's kind of shared history in public. And then, as, as often happens with O'Brien, you know, they, they have a meal, and over a meal you start to learn a little bit more about these two men and what they care about and what their past history with with Irishness and with kind of nationalism means to them. Paul and it's one of the things that I, I love there too is it looks to me, I, I mean, I remember my initial impression and even coming back to it now, like, oh my goodness, there are now three protagonists here and they're yeah. all playing a part and they're all very interesting and they have very different and unusual relationships to each other that all play out, you know, really well. So I, I remember seeing one review that said, well, you know, I didn't enjoy Patrick O'Brien as much because there wasn't much in the way of character development. And I went, oh my gosh, I wonder what really? this person read. <laughs> you know, so some people say O'Brien is a lot like Jane Austen because, you know, he has this incredible depth and detail and th the way he you know, really gets the period right. And other people say, yeah, but he brings every bit of Dickens here, the way he develops so many characters, minor and major, Absolutely. so well. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's probably fair to say that the character development can kind of come quite slowly and it's quite subtle. You know, people yeah. don't get a great, you know, a great big challenge and then a great big payoff with, you know, unvarnished kind of hubris every chapter. And there's always a little bit of give and take for the characters. But no, I'm, yeah, I, I think there's a loads of development going on. There are very, very long kind of complex arcs. And interestingly, we're going to have the arc of James Dillon as this kind of conflicted, but very kind of duty bound and kind of honor bound guy serving in a Navy that requires him kind of to swear away some of his, you know, some of his allegiance to Ireland. It certainly requires him to swear away um, any public allegiance he might have to his Catholic faith. Right. And, um, you know, it, this, this starts to come up. We bump up against it over and over again. First of all, we, we hear kind of Jack Aubrey in his kind of hail fellow, well-met, jolly way, manages to plant his foot in it and says, you know, I, I, I tried to say a few kind of casual things about the Pope, but it turned out that they didn't seem to answer, you know. Right. <laughs> James, James Dillon doesn't, doesn't get jokes about the Pope. Right. And then later on, when Steve, Stephen and Dylan are sitting at dinner and kind of Stephen maps out this way for them not to be acquainted. I, I love this line. He says, I'm often mistaken for my cousin with a sly castle informal look on his face. And the character of an informer, he says, is more despised in our country than any other. Yeah. Which is really kind of deep. You know, you and I, we both share this kind of, you know, contempt for people who kind of inform and turn turncoat on each other. And then, of course, Dylan makes another piece of classic O'Brien dialogue in reply. He says, I am entirely of your way of thinking. Yeah. The language is so beautiful. I mean, it's just so oh, wonderful. Really and the depth of some of this. I mean, you know, later I remember... Jack is talking to Stephen about this conversation that he's had with Dylan and, you know, about papists. And, and it's clear Jack is so, while an incredibly brilliant naval person, is so simple in some other views of the world. But yeah, as, as in much of O'Brien, this stuff is never black and white. Life is not black and white. There's a lot of grays. And Stephen's bringing him up on this whole 
group, the United Irishmen, that he and Dylan had both been a part of, and brings Jack's attention up to say, no, no, it was actually led by Protestants who were trying to knit together right. Protestants and Catholics and Presbyterians and others and Irish rule. And you think, wow. So one of the things that I love about this is, again, I can I can read this with a Kindle and go be going to Wikipedia and definitions all the time to get more and more and more, right. or I can read it right through and pick it up and realize um, O'Brien is leaving breadcrumbs, which he will snatch back together and will be meaningful. Right. And there are other parts that you can enjoy as as the depth, as deep a depth of history as you want, or you can continue to flow with the story and you're fine both ways. You get a huge payoff both ways. Absolutely. It's just so rewarding to kind of keep keep paying attention and kind of keep digging behind what's you know what's going on in the uh, in yeah. the, the narrative and in the dialogue. I, I just want to skip ahead to some more of the conversations between uh, between James and Stephen because I think you know oh, please. how they kind of how they how they dig through you know what are they going to make of this shared uh, history that they have? What are they going to make of the situation that they find themselves in in a in a ship of war? commanded by and for the for the betterment of the state of Great Britain, which neither of them can claim primary allegiance to, mm. but they're both feeling hidebound. I think Stephen hidebound by wanting to do you know a good job as a surgeon and as a philosopher and also beginning to feel kind of connected to his friendship with Jack. James hidebound to the idea, the very abstract idea, I think, of honor and duty. You know, he's not in it for the king. He's in it because he thinks it's right to defeat kind of characters like Bonaparte and He's taken this on, so he should do it, you know, with with his full commitment. And we get this conversation about patriotism between James Dillon and oh. Stephen. And these, are, remember, this is these are two Irishmen in in private, you know, in their quietest, most kind of candid moments. And it's this is the kind of writing that I think, with with great respect to Forrester, blows Hornblower a mile out of the water. There's this real right. kind of tension and darkness in what these two men are kind of thinking about and wrestling with. There's a really great speech from Stephen Maturin on, on patriotism, and I'm going to read some of it out. He says, I have had such a sickening of men in masses and of causes that I would not cross this room to reform parliament or prevent the union or to bring about the millennium. I speak only for myself, mind, it's my own truth, but man as part of a movement or a crowd is indifferent to me. He is inhuman. I have nothing to do with nations or nationalism. The only feelings I have, this is Stephen speaking, remember, the only feelings I have for what they're worth are for men as individuals. My loyalties are to private persons. Patriotism will not do, asks James. My dear creature, classic Stephen phrase, my dear creature, I have done with all debate. You know as well as I do that patriotism is a word and one that generally comes to mean either my country right or wrong, which is infamous, or my country is always right, which is imbecile. And oh, great quote, really great speech, you know, deep into the philosophy of where a liberal person's perspective, if you like, on, you know, where do you sit in a state and when the state's in at war, you know, written again from the perspective of somebody writing in, in the 1960s, yes. able to think through what would have been, what would it have been like for these guys? Because the troubles were flaring up in Ireland again in the late 60s, as right. lots of us know. Yeah, I think it's just brilliant writing and incredible, again, incredible depth, uh, as well as very much uh, you're talking about defining the characters, being absolutely true to where they are, and not just 
some speech pulled in the middle, but it is, it's who Stephen is and will be and continues to be. Um, what a, you know, it's, it's well, this life in this book to me is even richer than life sometimes. Right. <laughs> now, excellent. Well, we've gone deep into the characters. Maybe we should talk a little bit about naval life as well. So what were you going to say, Mike? Well, I, I was going to say, because I, I, I know we've, we've, you know, we're kind of moving ahead in the chapters here, but I wondered, and, and you tell me if it's right to bring it up here or not, um, you know, there's that great conversation that this is between Jack and Stephen, perhaps a little bit earlier than this, yeah. about the goat. And I'm not sure whether, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, whether we can do that justice here, but it, 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 and the reason I bring it up is this, that, uh, and again, I'm sensitive to looking at these reviews and different people. And the other, the other thing, in addition to people who are concerned about this nautical terminology that I found is that there's an occasional person who basically is condemning, uh, or condemns these books to say the characters aren't woke enough for them. You know, or that Patrick O'Brien wasn't woke enough for them. That you know, the treatment of 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 women, of uh, you know, racial minorities, of even you know, one of the reviews I read talked about homosexuality here, and I thought, yeah, yeah. wait a minute, we're talking about the 1960s, taking a very detailed and accurate view of the 1800s, and even doing so, to me. There's a lot of this that's terribly woke, both we just saw that in Stephen's comment about patriotism. And even in this yeah. little incident of the goat where I went, wow, this is this is a little unheard of back then for sure, yeah. I would think. Certainly unheard <laughs> of for the 60s and perhaps for some people now. And in a typical O'Brien fashion, he does it in a way that not only makes a great point, but is funny as can be. Yeah, and um, I, I think it's so easy to miss stuff like that and so easy when you don't miss it to say, oh, my gosh, where else can I find this? I love this. Now, we, we maybe we've run a little bit far ahead with all this character drama stuff and making it sound too much like a character study. And we've got to remember that people are maybe picking this book up, you know, looking for naval action and navalisms. And by this point that we've got to here, a couple of chapters in, of course, the Sophie is sent out on a cruise. It's sent out, first of all, escorting a convoy. Uh, and then it gets the chance to chase down pirates. And there is action there. And we see the the crew learning to kind of ply their, ply their cannon and learn how to kind of um, work together as a team to fire a broadside. The first bit of action is undercut, like Patrick O'Brien often loves to undercut action scenes because it all takes place while the crew are busy occupied with something else. And it's Stephen Matcher in the landlubber who spots that, you know, a, an Algerine pirate is making off with one of the kind of boats in the convoy. So we have this kind of quick scrap getting the getting this Norwegian vessel back and nearly, nearly a brush with prize money. And we learn a little bit about how excited the crew are at the idea of prize money. But I think there's a bigger theme here, which is the the idea of the Navy in general and Jack in particular, kind of really always feeling this need to be ready. And that kind of links us into some of the kind of the, the key words and ideas that Jack keeps coming back to, right? Well, it's so true. I talked earlier today about, you know, she'll suffer death as as one of these things yeah. that stayed in my mind for years and years and years. Lose not a moment is the other one. This idea that, um, you know, whether it's lose not a moment or there's not a moment to loss, 
to, uh, there's not a moment to be lost. It's, it comes up again and again and again. And it's, uh, it's one that Stephen says, you know, what is with all this rushing about? What are you doing here? And Jack explains it to him. So let me, let me quote Jack here. Jack says, it's as much yeah. a part of our life as salt pork, even more so in tide flow waters. Anything can happen in five minutes time at sea. Ha ha. You could even hear Lord Nelson on this. In this case of gunnery, a single broadside can bring down a mast and so win a fight. And there's no telling from one hour to the next when we may have to fire it. There is no telling at sea. So <laughs> great quote. Yeah. yeah, we've got this Jack's perpetual hurry. And, and occasionally when Stephen needs to get Jack's attention and move him quickly, he shall say, you know, Jack, there's not a moment to be lost. So that you know, people want to get there. They have this fear of missing out. Uh, I'm jumping ahead <laughs> FOMO. here. But, yeah, exactly. FOMO, which which seems to have survived even COVID-19, as I write read people's writings online as we're sitting here doing this podcast nowadays. But the um, this fear of missing out it, it, later, and, and I don't need to jump ahead in books here, but later you find a little bit of modesty with Jack. And you yeah. might think of it as false modesty, but... He very much says it's about being at the right place at the right time. And some people get those opportunities and some people don't. And it's fascinating how you, as you introduce different characters throughout the story, some people come in and say, you know, and through no fault of their own, they never had gotten to have a really active dust up with the enemy or something like that. So I want to just kind of interrupt the flow for a minute and i want to pick up on an aspect of the book that might well have been important for loads of us getting into these novels in the first place Mm. and that's the fact that there's a connection between the novel and the movie uh the peter weir movie i can't remember the year of production um the russell crowe paul bettany master and commander brackets far side of the world movie um and i know that i didn't see it until i think i'd read most or all of the series How, how about you mike yeah, same way. I'd, I'd read the series and then went back to see the movie. And I remember scratching my head a little bit going, which book is this? Right. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a good movie and I really enjoyed it. And the characterization is yes. great. And the, the authenticity is fantastic. Um, but to, in terms of wanting to follow along the stories in the books, it's a real mishmash, a cleverly put together mishmash, but it's a mishmash. So I thought maybe as we do more of these podcasts, we can have a feature, you know, a, a Russell Crowe alert or something where we say, yeah. oh, here's a bit from the movie because they're scattered all the way through the books. It's so, a great idea. <laughs> so I, I tell me what you think. I think we've got three in Master and Commander the novel. So first of all, one of the early dinners in the gun room, we have a speech where um, Jack Aubrey talks about Nelson. Nelson, his kind of hero and role model. Remember, this is 1800, so it's before the Battle of Trafalgar, but Nelson was already a big deal. He was already an admiral, and he already had a really illustrious kind of fighting record. And we get this speech. We get this speech um, recounted by Jack as he's kind of describing his interactions and uh, uh, conversations with the great Nelson. Um, Jack's describing this encounter with Horatio Nelson and says, Nelson was telling us how someone had offered him a boat cloak on a cold night. And he, Nelson, said, no, he was quite warm. His zeal for king and country left him warm. It sounds absurd as I tell it, does it not? 
and was it another man, any other man, you would cry out, oh, what pitiful stuff, and dismiss it as mere enthusiasm. But with him, you felt your bosom glow. Now, this, oh. this is a, a rare bit of kind of poetic, sincere speech from Aubrey with no undercuts or asides or kind of, you know, Aubreyisms. This is kind of a real sincere admiration for Nelson. And it's great to kind of help us get an idea of how who Aubrey was following. And obviously it's used in the movie for the same purpose, right? In a slightly different context. I think in the movie, it's HMS Surprise in Mid-Atlantic, where here is HM Brig Sophie in, in Mid-Mediterranean. But right. we're talking about enthusiasms. And of course, the other members of the ship's company have their enthusiasms as well. James Dillon and his kind of suppressed enthusiasm for Irish freedom and Stephen Maturin and his enthusiasms for, for philosophy and for, for, for other parts of his backstory. And maybe Catalan independence, I don't know. Catalan independence as well. Yeah, right. I missed yeah. that. So, Mike, we've, we've been talking for a while now. I, th- I think this might be almost our podcast, episode one done. We've made great progress, but we're not quite there, right? We're what, halfway through the book? Yeah, and it's it's interesting because so much has happened. And at the same time, as in Patrick O'Brien's style, so much is yet to happen. You're never quite uh-huh. done, even when you think you are. You're really not. How, how is Stephen Maturin going to get on learning to find his feet in the ship's company? How are the ship's company going to resolve their animosities and tensions between them? How is James Dillon going to get on resolving his own internal tension between his role as a lieutenant and his kind of passion for Irish independence? How is Jack Aubrey's military life, his love life and his social life, how are they going to be taken forward? What are we going to find out next? So this has been the first of what we hope will be many Lubbers Hole podcasts to come. Um, we're going to get right on and bring you the second half of this novel and bring you episode two to finish off Master and Commander. We want to say thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed sharing this time with us, please subscribe. Please tell your friends. What else can they do, Mike? Well, they could find us if they have some constructive feedback or, or suggestions for what they'd like to hear more of in future podcasts. Find us via our Facebook page, that's right, facebook.com forward slash lubbers hole. So please join us again. Please tell us what you like. We've got loads of ideas for more podcast episodes to come. Um, Mike, what do you say to a little more Patrick O'Brien? Ah, with all my heart. without milk, then, if you please.